without having a purpose for doing what you are doing, you will have problems. Without the ability to organize those thoughts as they come in the millions, you will have problems. But even if you have those two and you're not plugged in, you'll have problems. You are now listening to Via Crayons, the podcast. Extraordinary conversations with Trinidad and Tobago's creative thinkers and makers. We'll delve into their processes, their struggles, and what drives them to execute continually as creative individuals. I'm your host, Dano McNichol. Enjoy. This podcast is a production of A Big Box of Crayons. Please review and rate the show by going to podchaser.com slash the podcast. You can help support the show by buying us a coffee or two at buymeacoffee.com slash wearecrayons. Welcome to We Are Crayons, the podcast. And today we have the pleasure of speaking with Lou Lyons. You may know Lou most prominently from Freetown Collective, and I'm sure we'll get into a little more about that. Lou, welcome to the show, and thanks for taking the time. Uh, it's an absolute pleasure being invited to talk. Today is a good day because of that. So, Lou, let's get started right off the bat. Let me get a little bit about who Lou was as a child, and how did your childhood influence who you are today as an adult, as an artist? All right, well, Lou, as a boy, grew up in the rural village of Pembroke, which is in Tobago, on the eastern end. Grew up in a small village, family-oriented village. Grew up in a very black, conscious, and Christian uh, family. But music was always around. Uh, other forms of creative expression was always around. So my earliest years were marked by listening to music. After all, I'm, I'm named after one of my parents' favorite artists, a baritone singer who passed away now, but he, he went by the name of Lou Rawls. Lou Rawls was a great American baritone soul singer. So yeah, my parents were pretty much heavily into black music, Afro music, Caribbean music. Growing up, I grew up in the church. My introduction to musical instruments was from the church. My introduction into singing was from the church. My introduction to drama, theater, acting from the church. So yeah, although I grew up in a rural village in the small of the two islands, I still had a lot of early experiences with creative expressions that pretty much left an indelible mark on who I am today. In terms of like school and stuff, was that something that you you, you progressed in, in school in terms of like doing music and playing instruments and all that? Oh no, not in school at all. <laughs> I remember trying to learn piano once and I never went back. That was not for me. I remember trying to go to learn guitar once also. Not for me either. I don't know. The learning environment, I guess things are different now, but the way formally trained musicians learned back then was very rigid. It was very almost dogmatic, almost militant. <laughs> so the way they learned music was the way they taught music. And that was a bit too rigid for me, even as a youngster. I foresaw that I wouldn't survive. 
So, <laughs> yeah, I didn't stick around. Of course, in secondary school, you have the, the introduction, the music, where they ask you to buy a recorder, and mm -hmm. you learn the basic lines and notes and spaces of music. And that I understood, but as the manuscript and reading of music progressed, I, that again was not something my brain absorbed easily. But an ear for music, to be able to hear things and replicate it, yeah, I could do that all day. So how then did you progress? And what was the first instrument you started playing? Uh, the first instrument I began playing was keyboard. I remember um, my father taking a trip to the U.S. once. I have an older brother, so he asked both of us well, what we would want. And I, I remember saying a fire truck or some stupidness. <laughs> and my brother said he wanted a keyboard. And when the keyboard came, if my brother had a chance, he had plenty. I jumped yeah. on that and I dominated it like if it was mine. So having a keyboard in the house early was something special for me. But I wasn't proficient. I think the first instrument I really gravitated to, some years after that, my father bought me a bass guitar. I got that bass guitar a Friday night, and the next Saturday I was playing in church. Wow. Somehow, that was just an instant friendship. I and Olka explain it. And I would say to this day still, I believe bass guitar is one of my favorite instruments. After bass guitar, an uncle of mine bought a clarinet for me. So, I, yeah, I started playing clarinet. And then the church decided that they wanted to expand so I told them, hey, how about getting a, a trap set? How about getting a drum kit? So the church got a drum kit, and I started playing that too. And when I came to Trinidad to go to school, I wasn't playing anything. I came with my bass guitar, and I said, you know, I'll, I'll at least find a band or a church to fall in with. Uh, that was real difficult. Everybody already had their people, and I, I realized it was... The musician circles in Trinidad was very much cliquish and protected. Like, you had to earn your stripes to get in. But it wasn't until I was in the spoken word arena for a bit and linked up with Muhammad that I reintroduced myself to guitar and decided that I would actually exercise the discipline to spend some time to learn to play. So let me ask you this, Lou. From your point of view, what does creativity mean to you? Creativity is the ability to find novel ways of problem solving. That's right. it to me. In everything you do, there are going to be challenges. There are going to be difficulties. Creativity is the ability to find solutions that didn't exist, at least in your consciousness, before. And that's a good demarcation you make there in terms of saying in your consciousness, because obviously it's not necessarily recreating the wheel. From your point of view, do you think that it's something that is innate or that is something that we can learn? I believe in proclivities. I believe when children are born, they have proclivities to adhere easier to certain things, certain vocations. It's just the way we as human beings come wired. We come wired being able to be attracted to certain things more than other things. However, that attraction, that early attraction, that early proclivity does not predict that you're going to be good at it or proficient. Your early environment and how much your early environment nurtures and nourishes your curiosity for those things mm -hmm. will determine whether or not you, have, you develop a desire. When you have that desire, I believe that fuels you 
to make independent choices to pursue it. And it's only in the pursuit of it, you end up doing it. Right. So how did you develop that passion, that desire, that drive to get you to where you are now? I was always drawn to it. In my home, when I was younger, my father had quite a collection of vinyl records. So anytime I don't have anything to do, I, I interfere with that. I tried to pull albums and listen. He also used to collect a lot of black magazines. And I remember him having a collection of Jet magazines and Ebony magazines. You'd see black artists. I would see Cool Train in there. I would see Dizzy Gillespie in there. And at some point in Jet magazine, I saw Shabba Ranks in there. So I always had, didn't have any television, but I always had this visual stimulation of how cool artists used to look, how cool right. artists would dress, how cool artists would pose. And I always thought that this was something different to everybody else. I don't mm-hmm. see carpenters posing like that. I don't <laughs> see, you know, I don't see fishermen, you know, having that kind of suave. Right, so right. the visual appeal of who an artist is definitely appealed to me. But I would say one of the turning points in my life, deep down, even as a child, was when my mother and, and, and one of her sisters took me and my brother to a, a concert. And it was a big, a big concert in Tobago. It was some foreign gospel artists who came with their entire band, their entire technical team. And this is, as a wee little boy, this is the first time I am seeing lights, cameras, smoke. Like full mm-hmm. stage production, mm-hmm. and yeah, that was that was too much. I was overwhelmed. I, I, in my, I remember saying, "Whatever that is, that is what I want to do." Right, right. So I remember after that going home and trying to make drum sets out of buckets and all kind of madness, <laughs> trying to invent <laughs> instruments. Nice man. And how did your parents react to your? interest in in music or or becoming an artist my mother was always supportive and my father he had a different way of supporting i i guess i would say my older brother is very much academically inclined he was valedictorian of his class got a scholarship to go to college like when it comes to academia he is i think he has a knack for that right so an expectation was set. <laughs> right, right, right. And when my father saw that I, I was deviating from what my brother's ability was, I guess he had some, some concern. So you started music professionally at what age? If if we could call it professional, I mean, you can tell me how you, how you think about Boy, it. Yeah, the line not very clear, you know. I could give you a, a, a loose chronology. Mm-hmm. Met Muhammad in 2005. It's the first time we met each other at an open mic event in Sky Bar on the Avenue. Wow. <laughs> Sky Bar do not exist anymore. <laughs> so we met each other for the first time there. We didn't link up again until, let's say, 2009. That time, Muhammad was running an event in UWE called UWE Speak. So we linked back up again and I began writing again and performing more regularly. And then we would meet up and we would talk and just exchange ideas on life. And then met up with another brethren called Keegan Maharaj, who was from South 
I still believe he, he is one of the best spoken word artists I ever heard in my entire life. And quite a few women, Ariel John, Akila Riley, like there was a whole group of young progressive thinking people who used to meet up on campus and spoken word was was the vehicle of exchanging ideas. And I always knew I wanted more. So for me, as a Tobagonian, spoken word was my entry point to the culture. I was clear on that in my mind. I was clear that I would use this as an opportunity to get to know more people, mm-hmm. to network and just familiarize myself with the culture on a more intimate level. Uh, so that's like around 2010, let's say 2010, I got a guitar and Muhammad and I linked up and we had one song. And so we used to do our spoken word pieces and include that one song. And somebody say, hey, um, you all want to come up to London and, and do a show? I'm like, serious? They don't, they, they don't know it's one song we have, like one song. <laughs> but we say we wouldn't tell them, we'll go. But by the time we were ready to go, we had another song. So that's two songs. Two songs, yeah. And about, you know, about five, six, seven poems, man. That, yeah, that's a full show. So myself, Muhammad, and Keegan Maharaj, and another storyteller, Taharka Obika, all four of us went up to London. And that experience changed our lives. I was in my last year of studying for my law degree, and I, I just knew that after that, um, something had to happen. I had to make some kind of decisions. Right. So actually, it was in London, on the bank of the Thames, the name Freetown Collective was born. Mm. We knew that when we got back home, this feeling that we had, being able to perform and be appreciated for it, is something that we can't deny it. We can't go back and say, oh, this never happened back to real life. No, we'll find some way of making this our livelihood. We'll find some way of making this our calling, our occupation. So... I would say from that point onward, although we still had many years after that of paying our dues, a firm decision was made. And in that same year when we came back, Muhammad and I made a pact. We made a deal. We said for the next six months, he is going to focus solely on his voice. And for the same next six months, I'm going to focus solely on being able to be proficient on guitar. And every week, we will meet up about three, four times a week. And we would just, we just freestyle. We just play. I will fumble around some chords. He'll fumble around some words and some melodies. And we just kept doing that, kept doing that. And I remember at one point in time, I used to practice between 10 to 17 hours a day. That's impressive. On steel strings because we wanted it. We really, really wanted it. We used to look at Collis Durante and Gillian Moore and uh, Isaac Blackman and Madge Blackman and saying, wow, we, we will do that. That is what we want to do. All right. So from the click that, yo, this is what we want to do. After that trip, come back. We say, right, six months. This is what you're doing. Six months is what you're doing. What was happening in between that? Because... You were studying law. How then did that transition go? Because I'm sure that, you know, you had 
other external influences saying, boy, you're probably you're mad. Why you, where do yeah, you of know? course, yeah. of course, of so, course. So t- tell me about that. I spoke to everybody in my family and I told them, listen, I'm going to do my best. Like this is one one thing you all know about me is I'm I'm relentless with whatever I, I, I pursue. So while this might look like a crazy risk that don't make any sense, I want you all to trust me for a little bit. I, I was able to leverage my past commitment to certain things that they have seen with this new and unknown territory. And it wasn't easy. It, was, it, it wasn't easy because for the first couple of years, you're basically, um, you're basically a, a professional hobbyist because mm-hmm. you don't have enough of a name for people to want to pay you mm-hmm. to do any gigs or performances yet. But bet- between that space of time, I tried to balance both. I tried to balance a legal career and the music. And I, di- and I did that for about a, a two, three years mm-hmm. until it was clear I would not be able to do that. The turning point, now resigning or coming to that resolve that this is what we're going to do is Muhammad and I again decided that we wouldn't wait on gigs. What we will do is we will come up with a couple of songs and we'll keep writing these songs. We'll try to book these small venues and through our own shows that we would not wait to be booked. If people crazy enough to believe in us, let's see who. Let's number them out. And I remember like the first couple shows we had, we had like about 10 people and then we had 20 and then it boiled back down to eight. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, Dale Ramirez from Drink Wine Bar, like he knew we personally because that was the venue of choice. Right. Because yeah. if, if yeah, eight yeah, people yeah. show up, it ain't gonna look so bad. Yeah. It could just be with the house band for the night. That was our experimenting ground. That was our lab. That was our incubator, literally. And I remember on this one occasion, we announced an event. And I mean, Muhammad and I thinking, yeah, I mean, regular thing. We go, we go jam out for these 20 people. And somewhere during the evening, um, the fire service showed up. And they said that we causing a fire hazard. It was only then when we looked around, there was no standing room and drink. People were piling up out through the door and on the outside. Mm. We don't know how that happened, when that happened. But from that point onward, we know, yeah, well, yeah, yeah, we had to take care of this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's, 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 that's brilliant. What I'm taking away from the conversation at, at this point is your commitment to doing what you wanted to do without thinking about the reward of it and having the reward show up unknowingly. I guess some, somehow, somehow we knew. Somehow we knew it would come. And if, even in that period of exercising sheer faith, I would still say we were privileged because that faith was based on getting such an early opportunity to go to London and see how West Indians in the UK were reacting to what we were doing. And I missed out something. Soon after we came back from London, of course, pictures going up on Facebook and people were hey, you sell us traveling and thing, not, not knowing. <laughs> going over there with one song, two songs to the most. Yeah, in, yeah. <laughs> we making them the non the wiser. We ain't telling nobody anything. Yeah, and yeah. sooner after that, before we get 
a, a, a booking properly in Trinidad. We got a, a booking to, to, to perform in, um, in Guyana. We said, nah, something wrong. These people don't know he's amateurs, right? <laughs> but we could take it. And again, went to Guyana, wrote more songs in Guyana, and, and being able to see how people in Guyana was reacting to the music. At that point, we were absolutely clear. This is not about us. Are we not that good looking or we not that tall or strapping. Nah, this is the music. So let's just work on the music. We knew if this had the possibility of happening in the UK and in Guyana, there's no reason why it can't happen in that. We just have to find our corner and build. At that point, it didn't matter how long it would take us to build. We were prepared to build. Right, right. And at this point, how is it for you being able to be free to create, giving up that secure job, kind of releasing yourself with the freedom of, yo, this is how I'm going to spend my 18, 17 hours a day. How has that been for you and how do you manage that? Again, we were super blessed because around that time when I decided to more or less quit and do music, at that time, gigs were beginning to come in. Not high-paying gigs and not a lot of gigs, but gigs were beginning to come in. Uh, so we were, we were getting some money. It was a little bit of money on a weekly or monthly basis, but it was enough to contribute and to build with other people in our personal lives for them to say, all right, this is an investment. We're seeing something coming in and we will, we will work. Because people were still seeing us as spoken word artists too, we were still getting some spoken word gigs. Although we, we deliberately decided to slow down taking those gigs and refer those gigs to other people who we felt were more active in the spoken word fraternity at the point in time. We were getting some form of income. Nothing nearly enough <laughs> to support the, the standard of living that we had at that point in time, but it was something. It was something to allow others to feel interested in helping us. So lifestyles adjusted to suit the goal. Right, right. I think that's, that's an important, important part because especially as it comes to entertainment and music in particular, the lifestyle is always in the forefront, as you mentioned, in the Jet magazine and, and that type of thing. So as soon as you figure that, all right, I'm going to become an artist, you automatically, I guess, expect to be at a certain level without, as you say, putting in the time, putting in the dues. I'll give you a joke. Uh, tell me. At one point in time, Muhammad had a guitar, I had a guitar. And we had no personal vehicles. We, wherever we had to go, is a combination of walking <laughs> and public transportation. And I remember this one time, the predecessor of, of Music TT was uh, an organization called TNT Ent, Trinidad and Tobago Entertainment Company. And we were selected as a group to undergo this, this program. Glenda was one of the in instructors and Wendell Man Warren was one of the instructors, right? So we were expected to go through this workshop period for about two to three weeks. And then there would be a showcase at the end of that. And on the final workshop day, we were being given our notes as to how we are expected to be on the night of the showcase. And I remember <laughs> Man Warren watching me and Muhammad and say, 
when all they get at the venue is to go to all their dressing rooms and relax. There's not no time to be adding no last minute verse. There's not no time to be to be to be running over no performance notes. That is a time to relax before performance. And he say, yes, it's the two hour you are talking to. And he, <laughs> all you feel I do be seen, all you with all your guitar on that tree here, on a park bench here, all about the place. All you only pulling out all your... <laughs> none, none of that on the night for me, please. None of that. <laughs> and he, yeah, we, yeah, we thought nobody ain't seen we. We moving under the radar, trying to do what we had to do. But yeah, people were observing, people were seeing. <laughs> As we touch on finance and stuff there, right? Let me ask you, do you think that monetary rewards can actually be compatible with, with creativity? I believe everything that is created can be valued fairly. But you're not talking about a one-off occasion. I'm assuming you're talking about the possibility for an artist to be sustainable. Now, that requires consistency. I'll give you an example. I think it's a dollar for a bourbon, all right? When you buy something, let's say a simple snack like a bourbon, anybody who buying bourbon, they like the taste of bourbon. It means every pack of bourbon have to taste like bourbon. That justifies them walking to the shop and spending a whole dollar on a pack of bourbon. As with anything that we buy, there has to be some assurance that I will get what I spend in my money on this time. I get it the last time, you know. Yeah, but this time, I'm almost sure I will get it again. And that is because every time I purchased it, I got something. Right. And I was pleased with that. That's consistency. There is this belief that all artists are starving, and that's not true. Even in our culture in Trinidad and Tobago, there are some artists who are never out of work. Never. They're never out of work. And because the starving artist narrative is so prevalent, some of them feel guilty. Some of them feel guilty like, what's this starving artist? Let me, let me keep to myself so that mm -hmm. I don't get shine up. And I was, I was privileged enough to seek them out and go and talk to them to find out, well, how are you doing this thing? And the answer was consistency. Consistency. Every time I'm commissioned to do a job, I go above and beyond. I guarantee that whoever the client is will get what they ask. They will get, they will receive what they paid for. They will receive what they requested. That's one of the challenges that most artists in our culture suffer from. And I understand why it happens. And here's where I want to be fair in the conversation. Some of the artists who are never out of work because they found their consistent value. They had the privilege of coming from families that could have supported them to that point. So in their development, the development of their artistry, they didn't have to worry about becoming a good artist and eating, becoming a good artist and paying rent. There was some support system that they could have relied on while they honed the craft and apply laser sharp focus to just that. While other artists weren't so fortunate. So yes, art is something that they would they would do, they would want to get paid from it, but in the meantime they have financial responsibilities. And they may not have the bad mind that some other artists have or the band belly 
that other artists have. So guess what? They will try to do both. And in trying to do both, one will suffer. You don't want your paycheck to suffer. Guess what will become inconsistent? The art. Mm-hmm. The art will become inconsistent. And so it's a vicious cycle of artists who want to rely on something else until the art becomes sustainable. But the art will never become sustainable because the consistency is not there. Quite a conundrum. How about how did you and Mohammed find that harmony or, or, or balance in terms of your way of thinking, his way of thinking, and, 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 and bringing those things together to make this one thing that you know, we're going down the road and they saw we going? In that way, I would say we are blessed because we came together at a time where we were at similar crossroads in our individual lives. We were both doing some serious soul searching, some serious journeying. We were having some existential moments in life and having to answer those questions when we met again in 2009. And it was actually the asking and answering of those questions that became the bedrock of our brotherhood. At that point, there was nobody else I felt comfortable sharing certain life challenges I was having, certain crises I was going through, trying to be a a successful, self-determined Caribbean black man. And it was the same thing on on his end. So when we found that we inadvertently created a safe space to be honest with each other, it is the more we realized that we had a lot in common. Even the fathers that we had were very similar. The way we were brought up, the lessons we were taught, the ideologies that we were fed was just, was just so similar. And at the same time, our will to rebel against certain parts of our fathers and mothers upbringing of us was also very similar. So in that way, that was outside of our design. This was a grander design at play. It's how we feel. We feel as though we were, we were brought together at the right time. That has to be profound in the sense that you can't manufacture that type of brotherhood. It really does have to come from somewhere beyond yourself, you know, and, and you have to be malleable enough to, to kind of fall into that and, and, and move in it that sometimes is something difficult to explain because we have a paradox when we try to answer questions especially from younger artists and the paradox of free tongue is free tongue have nothing to do with music but it have everything to do with music mm. it have nothing to do with music because we would not be doing music if we didn't feel as though we had something to say we would not be going through the sacrifices that being a musician or an artist in this culture demands of you. Muhammad is an intelligent, he's an intelligent young man. Brilliant, brilliant. You know, he was doing, he was doing civil engineering. Like there are, there are ample opportunities in the business sector, in, the, in any professional sector, for us to go on and find employment. Or even to to use our minds and come up with novel business ideas and become entrepreneurs. Like, we could do that. But we are pulled in this direction because we have something to say. And we had something to say when we were doing spoken word. But we always knew that music is 
a way more efficient vehicle of doing that. The music is a way more far-reaching method of broadcasting your message than spoken word is. So it always started from a place of, well, how do we share these lessons that we were so fortunate to have? And in our tertiary education years, we realized that these lessons that our parents gave us should not be taken for granted because many young people, men and women alike, don't have them. And they have to make expensive mistakes in life to learn those lessons now. And we believe if the culture is so indigenous to all of us, then we could put some substance in it, could put some lessons in it. We could, we could put some things other than enjoyment in it. And hopefully, you know, people could get some, some lessons. As well as opening ourselves to be taught. Mm-hmm. In terms of culture, though. If you are enjoying this episode, please leave us a review at podchaser.com slash podcast. You can support the show by buying us a coffee or two at buymeacoffee.com slash crayons. Follow us on Instagram at a big box of crayons. And now, back to the show. How do you use the culture of Trinidad and Tobago? Does it influence what you, you guys do? And if so, how? And how do you take that then and fold it into how you write or, or how you play or whatever the case is? This is a complicated question, right? But for many years, because of the upbringing that we had, both Muhammad and I resisted the culture. <laughs> we resisted the culture because we didn't understand it. And we felt based on, on, on the overly religious upbringing that we had, and I shouldn't say overly, but just based on the religious upbringing we had, we didn't see the culture being wide enough, inclusive enough for someone with religious beliefs. Mm-hmm. And clearly we were mistaken, and that mistake is a result of the very restrictive way in which we are fed both culture and spirituality. Those, the, the way in which we are taught these two things, these two concepts are so narrow that we can't see them being subsets or intersecting with each other, and we can't see them being part of one whole cohesive life. So we had a lot of turmoil and, and self-conflict to go through before we arrive at the point where we were able to look at each other and say, this culture is our own too, you know. Like regardless, and that is the point we, we are at now. The, 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 the point we are at now is trying to get everyone to understand. If you are a Muslim, if you are a Rastafarian, if you are a Christian, if you are agnostic, if you are an atheist, once you come from a place, your culture is expansive enough to be part of your moral bedrock. Because your culture is way deeper than the manifestation of it that we see. So many of us will think that carnival is the culture. That mass is the culture. Oh, well, that's just one manifestation of it. But the culture is way deeper than that. 
the way in which we interact with the outside world and the way in which we, we react with each other is the culture. And once you understand that, you understand that collectively, as a people, there are things that we can agree on, are tasteful, and things that are distasteful. There are things that we can agree on, whether or not legally they say it right or wrong, we know as a people, it don't sit well with our conscience at all. That is the culture. The culture is people's interaction with each other and with the world around them. So when we understood that, we were able to understand, oh, well, somebody like Annalie Prime, who is a singer-songwriter, somebody like Giovanna, somebody like Omar, somebody like Jimmy October, somebody like Kalpi, you may never hear them sing a soca or a calypso in their life. But what they are doing is absolutely as Trinidadian as Super Blue. They are absolutely part of the culture as any other cultural practitioner. They are as Trinidad, Trinbigonian in their expression, as MacFarlane. We had to grow to that point in, to be able to recognize that as a creative in this space, whatever I put out has the culture in it. That now allows me to be critical of what I do in a way that is most honest. And by that I mean... In my work now, in our work, any of your work too, knowing that you can only be who you are after you, you've made your work, after you've made your, your creative expression, you can now stand back and look at it and really analyze what parts of this are insincere. What aspects of what I am doing isn't translating. And then you could begin to go into your creative expression, into your art and see okay, well, I am seeing, all right, while this is me, I'm seeing some influences in here that I didn't even know I had. I'm seeing some copying, I'm seeing some, some things that not doing the culture the best service it could be. Mm -hmm. And I'll give you an example. Our very first album, Born in Darkness. Album is a pop album, but the album was called Born in Darkness because we literally felt as though as artists in this space, we were born in darkness. We had no OGs, no mentors to hold our hands and say, hey, this is how you do this. This is how you do that. This is... We literally had to scramble around in the dark. So that album sounds like scrambling around in the dark. Right after that album, what do you get? You get where I am. First attempt at Soka ever. Still one of our favorite songs to perform. After that, well, you had this year. You had We Bad, you had Feel the Love, and now you have Shine. There is a progression that you are seeing. And this is just us growing into ourselves, becoming more rooted and unashamed of who we are, understanding that I don't have to set aside my religious beliefs to be active in my culture. If I'm told that, I'm told that by someone who does not understand what culture is. Mm -hmm. Ask that question of multiple people in terms of what they believe the culture of Trinidad and Tobago is. Because I don't think I've come to a conclusion as to what it is for me entirely, apart from obviously the surface level things, you know. You talk about that the food, you talk about, you know, different races, creeds, blah, 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 that type of thing. But to how you talking there about, you know, getting down to the roots 
the root of it is a journey that I think I'm still on. And in my mind, once I get that answer, how do I translate that into the things that I do, into the things that I say, or the work that goes out, you know, to make sure that that passes down to the generations coming up. So, so there's that identity. We don't have to have that crisis and be ashamed, as you say. You, you are now coming into that not being ashamed of where you come from or, or you know how you speak or whatever the case is. I would say very early on, it became more and more difficult for our culture to be defined because to a great extent, one's understanding of what culture is comes from reinforcement. It's not as innate as knowing that you have to breed to stay alive. And sometimes we, de- we describe culture as, as that. It's right. something so innate that you, mm-hmm. you don't have to do anything. It's, no, 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 no. Mm-hmm. On a certain level, even if you're unaware, you are doing culture. That's on one level. But on another level, culture lives in the minds of the people, so it is a cerebral exercise. But if we are unable to, to recognize that what we're doing is actually culture, then we don't know what the culture is, even though we're doing it. You understand what I'm saying? On one level, we are already doing it, even though we're not conscious of it. Yep. But we don't have it if we're not conscious of it. Mm-hmm. Because we're doing it, but we don't know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the reinforcement has to be through acknowledgement that what we are doing belongs to us, and mm-hmm. we own it. Yes. One of the things that I would, lo- I would love for us to improve, and I, am, I'm, I, I would like to think that I am doing my part, in my lifetime, and I have more work to do where that is concerned, is to curate the stories from the icons. Get those stories and reinforce them in every contemporary period. In Trinidad, because we are heavily influenced by media, our media, well, not even, when I say our media, I mean the media that is given to us. And we have a small percentage of our representation in it. We don't know ourselves. We know ourselves less than we know of other people. We know more of the world than we know of ourselves. Because we were more fortunate than some of the other islands who didn't have early oil money to afford certain infrastructural development. Along with infrastructural development came luxuries, came privileges. And one of that is having windows to the outside world. That didn't necessarily do us a lot of good because we weren't curating stories from our icons. We weren't lauding and praising our icons and making sure that their contributions are set in history. Yep. So that it's real hard work for, for we to now come and figure out, well, what them fellas is doing? Exactly. And they're so disgruntled. We had to catch them on a good, good day, day. <laughs> for them to talk. <laughs> you hit the nail on the head. Papa. We had to catch them on a real good day in order to mm-hmm. learn. Mm-hmm. So what I have learned from other students like myself who started the learning process before me and from the elders who have been blessed to sit at their feet is a very important part or a very important characteristic of Trinbigonian culture is our ability to seamlessly assimilate. Now, that song like Conman thing, 
That sound like fraudulent behavior. That sound like chameleon behavior. But you don't know how difficult it is until you see somebody try to do it and they just can't. That's why other cultures seem so rigid to us. They seem so fixed into shape and can't, they're not fluid. That's because they don't know how to be. And the Calypsonians been trying to tell us that. As a matter of fact, if we don't understand that Calypso was the first genre of music to sell a million records because it absorbed Big Band, it absorbed Dixie, it absorbed Swing, it absorbed Bebop. That is the metaphor of, of who we are. We are malleable and flexible enough to absorb many things without losing who we are. We, we are so wide and, and that is something truly admirable about our culture, the flexibility of it. Now, so I was having this conversation with, with Carl Henderson Beaver and we were just reflecting on it was common practice for a Calypsonian going to the tent to not write a fourth verse, but to go to the tent with his newspaper or collect some commerce and bacchanal on the way to the tent. Because the culture was flexible enough to absorb what was happening around. What, what do you see on social media? Sometimes something happened 24 hours, boy. Yep. <laughs> we memeing down the place. Please, we I'm are, you. Listen, <laughs> that is as Calypsonian as Shadow is. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But unless you know that that is something that we gifted with, you would see that as a manifestation of the culture and not know that not everybody could do that. This is actually something that we culturally inherit. We've inherited that ability to do that. So a lot of it, a lot of who and what we are is embedded deeply into our folklore and into the stories that need resurrecting, need dusting off, and need contemporary interpretations. Mm. Hmm. Yeah, you just shed some light on that whole topic there for me that it resonates with me and I could feel a little more like clarity as it relates to that. So that's real good. Is your creativity something they have to struggle with? And if so, how do you deal with that? Fortunately, no, my creativity is not something I have to struggle with because I've learned a couple lessons. And I'll try to break them down in, in three points. One... I'm not an entertainer. The focus of my creativity isn't to entertain someone. However, if there's no entertainment quality to what I do, I'm a bad artist. Whatever I make has to have some entertainment value in it. But I'm not doing it with the purpose of entertaining. I'm doing it as a form of activism. So I have to stay in touch with my purpose. I have to constantly evaluate what is important to me and those who are around me. I have to constantly evaluate, well, what is important to Freetown Collective? What is important to my family at home? What is important to Tobagonians? What is important to the Caribbean as a region? And if these are thoughts that always turn around in the crucible of my head, that is infinite possibilities for creativity. That's infinite themes. That's infinite points, infinite subject matters, infinite songs, poems, drawing. That's just infinite possibilities to create. So in terms of having any form of writing block or producing block or musical block on the point of subject matter, that does not happen to me because the art is a vehicle to carry ideas. And I'm never in a deficit or in shortage 
of ideas that concern our lives personally. There's always stuff going on around us that is supposed to keep the artist on high alert. The artist is the one who's supposed to seem paranoid. The artist is the one who's supposed to be tricking it. Hey, you, 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 you see that? You see that? Oh, you hear what you just said, eh? And the other person supposed to say, nah, that ain't normal thing. And the artist supposed to say, okay, that is not, okay. <laughs> okay, okay. That isn't so normal. <laughs> right. Yeah. And that's because your calling demands of you to be hypersensitive mm-hmm. and hyper aware. So once I am not asleep, I know that there will always be things to provoke me to create. One. Two, very early in life, I learned the lesson of organization. As an artist, if you're unable to organize, you're unable to create. Because you will always be overwhelmed by a million ideas at once. And that is a frustrating cycle. So you get up excited to create, but you don't know how to organize your thoughts. You don't know how to set out your method of creating. You, you don't know what your day requires in order for you to have an efficient day of creativity. You basically have a Russian roulette. Will I get lucky today? But you know that you have these passionate ideas. And so every day you do accomplish something, you feel more and more frustrated. And you feel as though it's because you're shitty. You may not be shitty at creativity. You may just be shitty at organization. So having organization skills is super, super, super important. And the third point is, I don't see it being possible for you to create and create consistently for your art to be sustainable without you being plugged in. You have to be plugged in. And to me, this is the difference between being a creative person and being a career artist. A creative person has the ability to do the vocation. So a creative person, they know the form. They know the vocation. They know the the rudiments of how to do the thing. They, They know the mechanics of doing the thing. However, as an artist, you are a hypersensitive, hypersensual organism that needs provocation in order to turn that provocation into energy that now moves you to create so you have to be plugged in you have to be plugged into something as an artist you you can't be nonchalant you have to be a geek about something you have to be a peon for something every single day i just learn something new i am addicted to tutorials because i have to stay plugged in If there's a new way to do something, I need to know. If there's a new technique, I need to know. If there's an easier way, I need to to know. I need to know. Knowledge is my cadre of tools. I've met many artists. They have the burning desire. They have the charisma to pull it off if they do get the opportunity. But they're not plugged in. When you try to get a sense of, well, what takes up your time? What takes up most of the hours of your day? It's nothing art-related. So you're not plugged in. You don't have roots anywhere. So without those three things, without having a purpose for doing why you're doing what you are doing, you will have problems. Without the ability to organize those thoughts as they come in the millions, you will have problems. But even if you have those two and you're not plugged in, you'll have problems. I don't have to like music. Once music is being released in Trinidad and Tobago and the Caribbean and the world, it gets a one listen from me. Why? Because I'm a musician. Mm-hmm. It don't require any more explanation than that. I am a musician. If there's music, a musician made that. A fellow peer of mine. 
a fellow co-worker in my industry put his creativity to work. So I so good that I don't need to listen to what my peers doing. That means you're not plugged in. If you are a graphic designer, if you are not obsessed over logos, something wrong. Mm -hmm. If you are a filmmaker and you are still able to enjoy films, <laughs> something wrong. Filmmakers not supposed to be able to enjoy films because their eyes become trained because they're so addicted to looking at shots, looking at cinematography, coloring, all that. They plugged in, they tapped in. Within all of that, right, is there a particular place or thing or something that you do to put yourself in that creative state of mind? That is, that is my default position, my, yeah. I used to have to do that, but not anymore. And part of that is because I could safely say, no, I'm a professional artist. I could safely say, no, I pay in taxes. I could safely say, no, I have a manager to answer to. So... From the moment I open my eyes, I am on the clock. If my, if my manager is calling, I don't have the luxury of screening that call. I have to take that call. So you've been through when you all started the first gig, first time travel, come back. We make a decision, boom. What would you say through that entire journey and up to now would you say is a significant sacrifice? that you think you had to make to be where you are now? Full disclosure, I ain't holding back nothing, right? I know I have friends. They may not think that we are friends anymore. There may be people who have less than good thoughts about me now. And that's because social interaction requires time. Relationships, whether they are intimate or platonic, they require time. They require the investment of showing up. And this might sound very selfish, but this is the cost, because he asks about sacrifice. Other than the responsibilities that I have towards my immediate family, I cannot guarantee that I'm going to show up for anybody else outside of, of work. I can't guarantee that. I don't know what free time is anymore. There is no time that I have where I have nothing to do. I have to, if I need to relax, I need to schedule relaxation time. I need to schedule a free period because there is always something to get done. And now Freetown Collective is a business that has to keep running. I can't be the person who drops the ball. And it, sometimes it's, it's kind of difficult to explain that to fellow artists, friends, or acquaintances. Because they were asked, but, but all of we don't have the time. How come, how come, how come all you so never have the time? The only way to tell you is to show you. And if you see a typical day of, of my life, I, I really don't have the time. If there's any time that might look like free time, because what we're doing is so competitive, immediately I go on straight to YouTube because there's something else to learn for me to be better at what I'm doing, for, for us to be able to provide a more competitive and desirable service. Because this is a privilege. I really want to emphasize this point. To be able to get up every day and do this is a privilege. I have done jobs other than this before. I have had a brief stint in landscaping and construction. I never want to do that shit ever again. 
I've had a brief no I I've, I've had years <laughs> working as a server, room service attendant, waiter. I worked in the hotel industry for a couple years well in Tobago. Never want to do that shit again. I've worked in the legal profession. I don't want to do that shit again. I have had several job experiences that makes me so appreciative of being able to earn income doing this. I am not going to make any choices that is going to jeopardize that. Mm-hmm. I can't. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, segue to that, what helps you persevere? <laughs> My good friend Keegan Maraj, who started off as an early member when we were doing um, poetry, spoke a word. He had this poem called um, <laughs> Broken Dreams. And he had this refrain in the poem where he would just put his hands up in the air and scream, where else was there to gravitate? Where else was there to gravitate? Where else was there to gravitate? That's how I feel. Leave this and do what? Put this aside to do what exactly? Cheat on this to do what? Waste time when I have this to do to do what? And usually, those answers aren't really forthcoming, so... If it's an uncomfortable day, if it's a hard day, guess what? I'll just stick it out. It's like going to the gym. You will quarrel with yourself right up until you do that first push-up, you know. But the guilt you will feel if you cheat on that set of waist, you won't be able to sleep. You'll be so rotten about yourself because you know you could do it. You know there are results to be gotten from doing it. So you wouldn't do it to do what? What else is that important to you? I would say it's priorities. Once you are able to have a very honest moment with yourself to set out in life, not this month, not this year, not this chapter of your life, no, for your life, what is of highest priority for you, everything else kind of chooses itself. So can you articulate for me, and I think audience would have probably picked up on some of it during the conversation, but at this point, what is your why? For doing what you do? My why is every other region of the world has had their period of enlightenment. Europe has had their period of enlightenment. The Orient has had their period of enlightenment. America has had its period of enlightenment. I think the only two places, and I mean, I would even say Africa has had, the continent has had its period of enlightenment. And there's this theory of postmodernism, which is the death of the author. Nothing new can be made. Well, that's quite, that's quite an insensitive thing to say, considering you have a place as young as the Caribbean here. So you're saying we just come on the scene, countries now 50-something years old, and you telling me nothing new can be made? No new philosophy could be birthed? No new discipline could be formed? No new ideas and ideology could come onto the scene. I reject that with every cell in my body. But every other profession is towing that line. If you are a Caribbean person and you're into medicine, you are learning the medicine of the first world. And in order for you to graduate and have a license to do that, you have to tacitly agree that your skill comes from what has already been settled knowledge. Or you wouldn't graduate unless you want to be a man like Trevor Sears and you won't be. <laughs> right? 
But basically, every other discipline follows that idea that everything has already been set and in order to be qualified, I have to tacitly agree that I cannot make anything new. That is every discipline except art. Art is the final frontier for new ideas. And that's why I, I will bring you back to the paradox. It had nothing to do with music, but it have everything to do with music. This is the place where people like myself and many others can dream freely without a supervisor, without a boss telling me that I cannot believe in the ideas that I come up with. And hopefully, if you're good at art, your art will then provoke the other professions. It will provoke the other industries. And that is how you will have your period of enlightenment. And yep. all the continents, in all corners of the, of the globe, Art and expression of ideas was central to any period of enlightenment. And if the Caribbean is yet to have ours, then I want to be in the profession that makes it okay to dream. So through that journey and through the beginning, through the middle, we're not to the end yet, far from the end. How were you able to deal with rejection and rejection of your ideas or what? Were you able to do to overcome that? Since I smallly making fun of me, boy, they tell me my <laughs> ears big. They tell me I look like Batman. Boy, when I was informed to the prettiest girl in class watching and say, how your mouth look like a bird beak so? And the whole class had to call me bird beak, you know. <laughs> they say, what do kill you does make you stronger? Uh, you understand? Uh. So ever since I know myself, right? My words and my affirmation in myself was the antidote. Mm -hmm. So if life has taught me anything, it's to expect more of that. Mm. <laughs> I mean, I'm not complaining if, it, if failure do come. Mm -hmm. I'm not complaining if, if rejection do come. But if it does come, man, I have, I have had a healthy dose of those. And sometimes even now I feel as though me personally, I feel like I just had to work extra hard. And that's why I don't take anything for granted. And that's why now that I am here, it had nothing else to do. Mm -hmm. I got a chance. Mm -hmm. I could have been outside knocking on the door. Mm -hmm. And has that rejection or any of those low points had any effect on your creativity? Of course, there are times when you, it may be a bit of imposter syndrome. You know, the times when you do get through, you wonder if this is just by sheer luck and if it will ever happen again. Or people make a mistake and like this song this time. This definitely not going to happen again. Because you're so geared to, to brace with the disappointment. And if we're being quite honest, the people of Trinidad and Tobago, as a culture, has had to deal with a lot of disappointment artistically, creatively, and in sports for a long while. So I understand when people, especially from Trinidad and Tobago, exercise hesitance or maybe stand off. It's just something new that you're doing. I understand that that also comes from a place that is deeper than them just not liking what you're doing. It's trauma. The culture have some trauma in it. If I understand that, I also understand that the antidote to that is consistency. Because if you only stop, you give people the opportunity to say, see what I tell you? Tell you them was them get lucky with that. Mm -hmm. So apart from that, Lou, what are you thinking about these days? 
I'm thinking about how to get the information that I usually discuss on the Full Disclosure radio platform more national and less niche. Only because I'm seeing more and more younger people, people who are younger than me, people who the elders say don't like the culture at all. All they like is alcohol and party. But when being given the information about the chapters of the of the culture before them, they're showing real interest, like sharing stories with them that came to me from talking with Lord Superior, from talking with Black Stalin. They are now being able to create images of real people in their minds and not just names. And if that can be impactful, for about 30 youths on alive, imagine how that could mobilize and, and strengthen the self-worth of a nation of mm-hmm. youth. We could make the thing cool. Mm-hmm. And that's why, too, I'm glad that you took the time. Granted that your time is precious to you, so I really appreciate it even more now that you take the time to have this conversation. Because this yeah, is, this is part of it. I this is that. part of it. You, you're doing work in the culture, yeah. too, so yeah. I, I can't justify telling you no. Right. Because you're doing, right. you doing your part too. Because this is going to live on far beyond mm-hmm. far beyond us and having your voice is great to have it added to the cadre of other people. So if there's any at all, what would be your ultimate creative goal? My ultimate creative goal, man, is to witness the musical um, progress be hand in hand and on par with the film progress in our culture and to be able to be involved in that like my exit plan is i want to be a sound supervisor mm-hmm. when i'm in 70s and 80s and thing i want to sit down with them youth and them mm-hmm. and watch their proof of concept for their film and say all right i know just the music that we could license for this whole film and it would be 100 percent local content that that hmm. that is why i'm doing all this for right so with that being said, if you had a billboard mm-hmm. and you could put one message on it, what would that message mm. be? Man, I will echo. I will, I will echo the message of MX Prime. Make way for the youth. <laughs> Make way for the art. I just say it when I when I when I run in joke with with rockers and them, but yeah, I really believe that man. Make way for the youth and make way for the art. That is the conclusion of my entire feeling about the culture. Mm. Make way for the youth and make way for the art. Mm. And subsequent to that, what would you like to be most remembered for? Trying by mm-hmm. just being relentless, just <laughs> just <laughs> just being a pain in the side of destiny. Like just not giving up. Remember me for that. Just not not give just nah. <laughs> <laughs> Just not giving up. Just not not giving up at all. Yeah. <laughs> if you remember me for that, you're good. I'll be good. Because yeah. you see, if with the blessings of Jah, some big achievement come, many people may feel as though that unachievable to them. But guess what? Everybody could relate to hardship, challenges, and problems. And if somebody could be remembered as the person who faced all them things and just didn't give up, anybody could do that. Mm-hmm. My pattern message would be this. Nobody is planned to get old. It just happened. And what separates old people from elders is people who are still useful to the youth. Actually, the youth 
are the ones who bestow the title of elders, not the elders themselves. You get the title of being an elder because people keep coming to you. So we who are in this generation, we will get old. If we want to be elders in this culture, I begging all of us, please, keep the youth inside. Let's not be caught up in what we want to accomplish and we're so tunnel vision that we block out the youth who are close to our side right now from our sides. And they're asking for a little guidance. They mightn't even be asking for a little guidance. But if you just, you know, glance to the left or glance to the right, you might see somebody doing something and you might be able to just give them one word that go pivot them in a direction that will make what they're doing ten times more efficient, ten times more profitable. Be useful. Yeah. Hey, Lou, as we wrap up, just wanted to say thanks for taking the time. Really appreciate it. Enjoyed the conversation. It was an absolute privilege to be in this conversation with you my brother and thank you i am lou lyons and in a big box of crayons i will be midnight black stay colorful please share this episode with someone who would find it valuable if you haven't yet subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts to get new episodes as they become available Find additional content on abigboxofcrayons.com. Follow us on Instagram at abigboxofcrayons. We Are Crayons, the podcast, is a production of A Big Box of Crayons. All rights reserved. Until next time, remember, we are all the same in the fact that we'll never be the same. Stay colorful and thank you for listening.